Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. How to live in an uncertain world. This psalm has been on my mind for the last week or two, not least because of the extraordinary turbulence which has captured the mood, not just in our nation, but almost globally. In fact, I read the other day some words written by John Simpson, the BBC World Affairs editor, where he said, now there are so many pressures and challenges facing our world, it's difficult to know which one to concentrate on. Um, he gave the illustration of running down, uh, uh, being in a video game where you're running down corridors with enemies coming out from every conceivable place. You know, you've got this enormous weapon, you're trying to choose which of the enemies to shoot. It's almost impossible, he says. There are such a raft of challenges which are eating away at the world's sense of uh, security and certainty. Um, It's obvious, isn't it? One just needs to list. We've prayed for some of those things, the turbulence in the Middle East, uh, the impact of terrorism, uh, Brexit, uh, the uh, US presidential election, uh, the economic forecasts, uh, global pandemics. All kinds of things have produced this mood of uncertainty and insecurity. Um, I read uh, just a short while ago some comments about a book just being published called The Age of uh, Anxiety, which describes our context, in which the authors begin with a joke uh, that uh, if you're anxious about what's happening in our world, you must see a psychiatrist. If you're not anxious about what's happening in the world, you definitely need a psychiatrist. And that mood, as I say, has not only impacted uh, our nation and others around the world, but it's also impacted Christians. 
Um, the last few years have seen a change of mood as far as uh, the actions and attitudes towards the believing community are concerned. At present, it's estimated some 200 million evangelicals like us are under direct and hostile persecution in some 35 countries and growing. Uh, we increasingly are under pressure here in the West as people cast out on the Christian worldview. So in a world like this, inevitably it raises the question, how can we protect ourselves from these malicious forces which are ranged against us? How can we be safe and secure? And in some cultures, of course, people adopt all kinds of superstitious practices to try to ensure that they're kept safe, even in a sophisticated Western environment like ours. So they carry a rabbit's foot for good luck, some people wear their clothes inside out, believe it or not, that's also for good luck. Or they eat garlic for good luck or to prevent themselves being kissed, I'm not entirely sure. And they have a St. Christopher uh, image hanging from their rearview mirror in their car. And of course in our culture there's a huge growth in astrology as people become desperate to, to uh, have some sense of control over their lives some sense of, of prediction of what the future might hold. Well, of course, we Christians also face those times of fear and uncertainty. Um, we have always believed that God is in charge, but there are a growing number of voices, as I've hinted, which tell us it's all make-believe, that we're whistling in the dark. How can a believer be safe and sure, safe and secure? Well, the Psalms, of course, are a wonderful collection of songs which are constantly affirming the reality of our security in God himself. And one of the greatest is this Psalm, Psalm 91. It's been loved by God's people through the centuries. It's often been one of the Psalms which has been read at services before the military go out to fight wars. It's a, a, a Psalm that's repeated by Christians under pressure in the countries I've mentioned it's full of assurances of God's protection. It's one of those great psalms that's memorable because of the ways in which it expresses our security in God. But as we read it, I suspect you feel like I do, that there is an inevitable question mark about this psalm. It is full of comfort when we read it, but as we do so, we wonder if it really belongs more to the realm of fantasy than to reality. Because we know too many devout believers who have entrusted their lives to this God and yet who have often perished in terrible ways. It seemed that the Almighty did not protect them. So is this some, another example of Christians just whistling in the dark to keep their spirits up? Well, there are several things to bear in mind when we read this psalm. The first thing, of course, as, as we will discover in a moment, is that we Christians are not immune from every disaster. At the end of the psalm, in verse 15, uh, the promise is God's presence in the midst of trouble, not that God will beam us up out of difficulty. We know Jesus did not promise his followers immunity from these challenges, and neither does this psalm. Then another thing to remember as we read it is that uh, it's a basic principle whenever we're reading parts of the Bible is to recognize the genre, the type of literature. And this, of course, is poetry. Uh, C.S. Lewis commented about it when he said the Psalms must be read as poems with the emotional rather than the logical connections. 
Otherwise, we shall miss what is seen in them and think we see what is not. So the picture of a godly man walking through animal traps or snake pits or bloody war or devastating disease, all of those images have to be interpreted in the context of the poetry, what the writer is trying to achieve. And then we must also recognize that the promises of this psalm are invalid in cases of misuse. In other words, they're not here to test God. And we know that from the story in the New Testament. The psalm has been misapplied by the devil himself when he was tempting Jesus. So we need to understand what the psalm is doing. And in essence, the purpose of this song is to nurture trust in the God of the universe. It's there to assure us of our complete security. And on the sheet, I've just put a few bullet points as we walk through the psalm, which underline how we know we can be safe. The first dimension is in the opening verses, we are safe at home. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High (coughs) will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, one aspect of the crisis of security in the world in which we live is associated with this idea of belonging. In other words, many people feel the alienation and the uncertainty of our world. They feel it all the more because they have no true sense of belonging. It's an issue of identity and security. So the fundamental issue for the Christian believer... The foundation for our security is knowing where we belong, is knowing our dwelling, our home. It is with God himself, the psalmist says right at the top. Psalm 91 urges God's people to trust this God of the covenant to whom they belong. So these metaphors, refuge, for example, is a beautiful picture of God's care and protection. It belongs to the, the word group there, the shadow of the wings of the Lord. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. He is your home. And it links, I think, with the opening verse of the previous psalm, also well-known psalm, Psalm 90. Do you remember? Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are our dwelling place. It's a lovely expression in that psalm of the God who is both personal and eternal. You are our refuge. You are our security. You're our home. Not a place, but a person. And so through the centuries, this song has been affirmed. God's people would have said, well, we had no home in Abraham's day. You were our home. When our parents lived in a foreign land in Egypt, when they lived in a foreign land in exile in Babylon, you were our home. When we wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, you were our home. So I asked the question this morning, where do you live? Where is your home, your security? If, when it comes down to it, everything was stripped away from our lives, would we feel secure in the Lord as our primary home, the Lord himself? But the opening verses describe, they have four words for this God who is our home, which are worth noting. Most high, the psalmist says. In other words, he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of all things. 
Um, Derek Kidner says this is a phrase which describes a God who, which cuts every threat down to size. Whatever it is in this world, he is the most high. And then the second word is uh, almighty, El Shaddai. It's a name which implies rock, solid, stability. He cannot be moved. Nothing can shift this God. He's always there. And then the word the Lord, Yahweh. He's the God who's made his promises to his people. We belong to him. No one can take us away from him. And then the fourth word is my God, Elohim. The God who brought everything into being. The God who sustains all things by the word of his power. And you'll notice in this instance the psalmist says, my God in whom I trust. So Christian believers know that our real home is in him. In fact, we, we, we go further. Our real home is in Jesus Christ. As we put our faith in him, we are united to him, vine and branches. We belong to him in this organic union. We are safe in Jesus Christ now and for eternity. Uh, we prayed at the beginning, uh, Robin prayed, that maybe there are some who have not yet found that security in Jesus Well, we must do so. Our faith is in him. It's not the strength of our faith, but it is the object. Our faith is in Jesus Christ who died for us and now who lives forever. When we are united to him, we are safe eternally. Well, I can imagine around the world, small groups of believers in the places we prayed for, actually, just a moment ago, in the small Christian community in Syria or in Iraq or in Gaza, or North Korea. And we can imagine them taking this psalm, can't we? You are our refuge, our fortress. Or believers perhaps who've lost a loved one, or who feel the loneliness of broken relationships, or some of us maybe the isolation of the persecution or the pressure we face either in our families, or perhaps even in our workplace. Lord, you are our dwelling place. You are our refuge. We belong to you. And it seems to me this is probably the main thing about this psalm. Amid all the ups and downs of our lives, we can be absolutely certain of our security, of our home in God himself. It's been well said, I think, that in our lives and in the world that we've just been describing, we need to learn to reason from the top down. So in our circumstances, whether it's the challenges of our own life or the turbulence of the world in which we live, not to operate just at that level, ground floor, not to interpret things just that are going on around us, but to reason from the top down, as this psalmist does. He begins with the Almighty. His perspective on all that's to follow is the greatness and trustworthiness of God himself. My God in whom I will trust. We're safe at home. Well, then he goes uh, from verses 5 onwards to talk about fear. We're safe from fear. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. So here the psalmist turns and talks to us, the readers, in very personal terms. And he urges us not to fear. And you can look at some of the things he says. Verse 3, the fowler's snare... Um, that's descriptive, a kind of unexpected trap, some disaster, which catches you completely by surprise. Verses 3 and also verse 6, deadly pestilence. Verse 6 has the added force, the pestilence that stalks 
in the darkness. And it's surprising how much this is a fear for many contemporary people. Fear about their health and their well-being. It might be a virus, it might be a malignant cell in their body. It provokes fear. Verse 5, the terror of nights. Relatively few of us, I think, escape those restless nights. You know, when you wake up at 2 in the morning and you're thinking, what if this and what if that? It always seems much, much worse in the dark hours of the night. And this, interestingly enough, this psalm, it's suggested in the Jewish prayer book that this is a song that we should read every night before we go to sleep. It's pretty good uh, medications, better than Horlicks, is to read Psalm 91 as you go to sleep. Some see this phrase, the terror of night, as a reference to the figure of death. And that, of course, is one of the great contemporary fears that people face. Verse 5, the arrow by day, all kinds of threats to our security. It might be terrorism, it might be violence, it might be the acts of Satan himself. And then verse 6, the plague that destroys at midday. I read someone who suggested that might be a description of middle age. That's the plate, the time when your uh, narrow waist and broad mind change places, as you probably know. This middle age, which for many people can be critical, and exhausting, disappointing, destructive sometimes. Well, whatever the way in which we understand the, that poetic language in those verses, this is a list of threats which are outside of our control, and they produce fear. So with a list like that, however do we get out of bed in the morning? And so the psalm makes the point that the opposite of fear is not courage, but trust, as we've seen right at the beginning. Whatever is thrown at us, we must trust ourselves fully to God, my God, in whom I trust. Um, on, on the uh, notice sheet, you'll see I've just made reference to Psalm 56, which is a beautiful psalm of David when he was under pressure. He was actually fleeing from Saul. And in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 56, he says, When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. Now, no one who is fearful is truly free. So David says, your word I praise. It's as he trusts what God has said that he is then liberated from fear. It's exactly what Jesus said. The truth will make you free. That's why here at Chalmers, uh, time is given to reading, understanding, obeying God's word, which sets us free from the things that otherwise would burden us, would frighten us, would terrify us. Psalm 91 provides the assurance there is nothing we need to fear if our trust is in the Lord God Almighty. Then thirdly, safe from judgment. We come to the next two verses, 7 and 8. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Well, we do have to step back and again ask, how do we understand words like this? It clearly cannot mean that in some situation of war or a terrorist attack, a believer somehow escapes death. So I think it's important to note the emphasis at the end of verse 8, the punishment of the wicked. 
Um, I mentioned a moment ago Psalm 90. Some people think that Psalm 90 and Psalm 91, they both contain echoes of the Exodus story. Uh, God's people were trapped in Egypt, you remember, and they were kept safe by God from plague and pestilence, some of the things that Psalm 91 describes. And then they were rescued from the enemy. Again, the way in which Psalm 91 describes it. It was in Exodus 14, you remember, they witnessed this terrifying moment of God's action of judgment on Pharaoh and his armies as they chased God's people. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, but it will not come near you. So some, some writers see Psalm 91 as primarily describing safety for the believer from the judgment which is meted out by God himself to the wicked, as verse 8 implies. And the New Testament, of course, underlines this. What Psalm 91 hints at, the New Testament shows, is wonderfully realized in the gospel. By God's mercy and grace, we know God's protection from judgment. Jesus himself carries our sin. He takes the just wrath of God, which we deserved. He takes it upon himself. He brings the freedom of salvation. He fulfills what this psalm is pointing at. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are safe from judgment. Well then... The middle body of the psalm reminds us of another. We are safe from evil. Verse 9 onwards. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. And the verses which follow, uh, in their poetic language, they describe all of the evils which we might confront, Satan included. In fact, there are a couple of references you'll notice to the lion and the serpents, both of which are used in the Bible to describe Satan's work. So I think another function of this psalm, as it calls us to trust God, is to remind us that we are protected from Satan's power, that evil has lost the initiative in the lives of God's people. Um, this is a very big subject, and I just want to set it in context for a couple of moments before we draw to a close. It's possible, I think, that some Christians live their lives as if they're in a constant Star Wars adventure. And they are surrounded by equal and opposite forces of good and evil. And neither good nor evil is quite strong enough. And so we assign this part of our life to God. And then something else happens and we, dis we ascribe that event or that part of our life to Satan. It's almost as if our lives are swinging between these two worlds of good and evil. In fact, I think it would be true to say that this isn't how the Bible portrays the world in which we live. In fact, we began from this psalm affirming the most high the sovereign Lord, God himself. So scripture underlines he is always sovereign, always in control. It throws up plenty of mysteries about what is happening in the universe, but it affirms nothing is outside of his control. Even Satan himself is under God's authority. And we know that from the story of Job and from the wisdom writings in the Bible. So in Psalm 91... The assurance which is given us here about being safe from evil is set in this context of our understanding of God's providence, of God's overruling care of his people. God promise, God's promises can never be thwarted. God's ultimate ends 
will always be fulfilled and people, God's people can live in the safe knowledge of that. I say again, that is not easy for us, especially if we're walking a demanding pathway ourselves. Uh, one hymn writer who had his fair share of tragedies was honest enough to say, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who said, the problem with looking for footsteps planted in the sea is that they immediately become invisible. And being told to trust God's good purposes when you are going through some demanding situation as a believer or some tragedy can sometimes be very difficult for us to cope with. Often we can't see what God is doing. As has been said, the providences of God are like Hebrew words. They're best read backwards. It's worth remembering, though, I think, that the context of these kinds of promises is in the the Old Testament and New Testament story, which is a story of deliverance. The God who delivered them from Egypt out of slavery. The God who brought them across the Red Sea. The God who delivered them from all of the perils of the wilderness as they entered the promised land. The God who delivered them from exile. So the point is, he didn't deliver them from those disasters. He brought them through those difficulties. He delivered them from it. And they sustained that great hope, didn't they, in the Old Testament, that one day there would be the deliverer who finally, of course, came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Psalm 91 actually then brings us into the presence of Jesus himself, the deliverer. He's exemplified here. He prayed that disaster would not come upon him. He went through all kinds of things way beyond the sufferings which this psalm describes. He endured the cross. But the God of Psalm 91 was also the God who raised Jesus, who delivered Jesus, who raised him from the dead. So reading this psalm across the generations and now this side of the cross is an encouragement to us to trust this same God the God who brought the mountains into being, the God who delivered his people, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. We know our security from evil is precisely because of what God has done in Jesus in his death and resurrection. Well, let me summarize the point just by referencing uh, the wonderful parallel to Psalm 91, which is Romans 8 and all that Paul says in Romans 8. Do you remember what he says about security in Romans 8? He looked around all of the all of the challenges in this perilous universe, all of the threats in this hostile world. And he says, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And his well-known verse 28 is a beautiful expression of the truth of this psalm. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Um, But Derek Kidner says something important about Psalm 91, which also applies to Romans 8 and that is this is not a charm against adversity the sweeping promise of Romans 8:28 everything for the good of those who love him doesn't exclude what Paul wrote a couple of verses later in Romans 8 trouble hardship persecution famine nakedness danger and sword What Paul is saying is that nothing, none of those things can possibly separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's our refuge. He is our shelter. 
He's our home. So nothing can touch God's people without his permission and without it ultimately fulfilling his redemptive purposes. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul concludes Romans 8. Well, this is Psalm 91. We're not saved from those things. We are saved in them. All evil included. We can be safe from evil. And finally, as we close, uh, the, the psalm reminds us that we are safe forever. Um, if you notice the, uh, the structure of the psalm, at this point, it suddenly changes. And instead of the psalmist speaking, it is now an incredibly profoundly encouraging statement from God himself. It's a series of these personal (coughs) promises as God speaks to us and guarantees our future. The song has called us to trust the Lord, but you'll notice on God's side, there are these eight expressions of what he will do for us. Uh, Let me paraphrase it. I will rescue you. I will protect you. I will answer you. I will be with you. I will deliver you. I will honor you. I will satisfy you with long life. I will show you my salvation. So these promises keep hammering home the basic point. You can trust me in all of these ways. And perhaps the key assurance is the little phrase in verse 15. I will be with him in trouble. It's the assurance of God's presence in every situation which we might face. The Lord said exactly the same to Moses. Do you remember after he asked him to to show the way? My presence will go with you. So many other Psalms, like Psalm 23. I will be with you. It's the assurance that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have nothing to fear because the shepherd is with us. And finally, the psalmist David says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ultimately, I will know God's presence for eternity in the house that God has prepared, as Jesus said. Well, that's where Psalm 91 closes as well. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So those closing words remind us that our security in the end is eternal. We will experience An eternity with God himself, in his presence, with Jesus Christ, if our lives are connected to Jesus. We are safe at home. We are safe from fear. We are safe from judgment. We are safe from evil. We are safe forever. Let's pray together. Father, we're very grateful that we have this ancient song to read in a very turbulent world. And whether it's the turbulence that we've been describing of what's happening nation by nation, or whether it's the turbulence which is within our own hearts and minds, some of the challenges which we ourselves face, we want to thank you for the assurance of this beautiful song that we are roped to the safest guide in the universe that nothing can separate us from you and from your love, your redemptive love. We pray that each one of us in the room this morning will have reached out our hand to accept the invitation of Jesus Christ himself for forgiveness and for eternal life, so that we each may be safe forever, knowing him. 
We pray that in turn that will lead us not only to enjoy the safety and security which this psalm promises, but also to tell the good news to all of those who are in this turbulent world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.